Can you read your notes and your best French accent? Uh, we. Oui. Okay. That's oh. all I got. I, I don't have. I'm not an accent guy. I'm not good at that. No, me either. Um, I'm actually pretty bad at accents. Yeah, I can't do accents or impressions. You did a you did a good German accent in the Prisoner of Paradise episode. Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> I think I can do like a German one for a little bit. Um, do you know anyone that just does a British accent occasionally? Um, no, I don't think so. Not that I can think of, at least. Like, I know like at least three people that will just slip into one for, I guess, fun. Right. Uh, it's not fun. Stop. <laughs> No, it's fun. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. Yeah. God damn, you all have a lot of Parmesan cheese. Just keep... Just I'm going to line the uh, rim of my margarita with <laughs> Parmesan cheese. That sounds like a good idea. It's healthier than salt. That's That might be true. There's so much salt. There's sodium in it, but I bet there's a lot less sodium than salt, since salt is sodium. Don't use any of that. I'm going to use some of that. Okay. Look um, at uh, just sitting up there judging us. Yeah, Rezzy. get down. Yeah, Rezzy's on top of our little pantry cabinet looking down on us judgmentally. She's going to push that birdhouse onto your head. Yeah, I figured that's probably the way I'll go out is the cat just dumping something on me and it snapping my neck and killing me. Rezzy. She's exercising her Fifth Amendment rights to not incriminate herself, which I respect. We have a show to do, Rezzy, so this can't be all about you. Yeah, you're going to need to learn about your rights. Uh, So, yeah, uh, I was listening back Mm. to the uh, Prisoner of Paradise episode, which uh, when this comes out will have been out two weeks ago, I guess, but like the thing that I thought was really funny was like going back and listening to it in hindsight. Um, I was really insistent that the Joe Murray, uh, the creator of Rocco's modern life, the main character in the film. Yeah. Uh, I was really insistent that he had a Japanese charm. I was super insistent about it with you and you were like, I don't know if that's a Japanese charm. I don't know if they say that. And I was like, yeah, they do. Just wait, just wait. And then uh, I realized after listening to the episode that, yeah, they never really actually said that. It's okay. It's at the, uh, it's at the end of a long day. Yeah, we were. You were. Don't drag me down into this. (laughs) You were wrong. And I, I was wrong. We were two sheets to the wind. Yeah. Or three sheets. How many sheets to the wind were we? Um, I don't remember. Probably like a whole like laundry set. I feel like at that point we couldn't count the number of sheets to the wind because of our blurred vision. Yeah. Um, but we're all just sheets in the wind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can think about that one. No, Rezzy. Rezzy's up there howling at us still. I'm sure that got picked up. Yeah, absolutely. Hey. Rezzy. Do you want to pause it and we can move her? No, I'll just let her keep going. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. That's true. Um, So it's okay. You were wrong and I was right. (laughs) Um, So I think that's just a good enough of an introduction. Oh, yeah. So uh, welcome once again to this week's episode of The Raincoat Report. I'm Boss here with Jeremy. Hello. And uh, today we're here to talk a little bit about 
the work of my man Jess Franco. That's right, Rezzy. Uh, Jess Franco has been one of my recent uh, obsessions, mm-hmm. and I am excited to talk about him. A big fan, too. He's done some great stuff and some baffling stuff, and this movie has both. Exactly. Uh, it's it's something. It's an experience. Mm-hmm. It's uh, probably the least, I don't know, the least pornographic thing we've talked about so far. I don't uh, know. It might be on par with the... Uh, like Ultra of Lust, I think. Yeah, I mean it's it's softcore. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's less pornographic than like I don't know, Act of Confession. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked some stuff, but uh, you know, Jess Franco's best work is typically his softcore stuff. Uh, yeah. He did do some hardcore stuff. Um, we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, once again, in the background, my cat Rezzy is yowling. So if you hear a bunch of yowling. It's, it's Razzy. Yeah, she's fine. <laughs> Razzy, what's wrong? Do you need she, me to get you down? She is the perverse countess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's her. Um, looking down at us from her strange high house on the rocks. <laughs> planning to eat us, perhaps. Or something worse. Yeah, I imagine that like when I go out, she's going to end up eating my face. When she drops that birdhouse on your head, it's over for you, fella. Yeah, it's not going to be like that we're, we've been stuck in the house for a long time and eventually she decides that she needs to eat oh, my face. She long ago made that decision. Oh, man, she is like... She, it looks like she is having trouble getting down. Let me go get her. <laughs> succeed for listeners who want to know uh yeah so i'll probably cut some of that out but basically the cat is on top of the pantry and she has tried to get down and seems very uh worried about it because she like put her paws down like she was about to jump and then she pulled back up and bossy's no manlet it's a very tall cabinet and she would just retreat to the corner like, there is a set of shelves next to it that's only a few feet lower, so, like, she could definitely jump down, and she's done it before. But she seems to have some trepidation about it today. She would rather interfere with our show. Oh, yeah, that's... Than behave. Yeah, that makes sense. She's an enemy of the podcast. Um, so... <laughs> uh, as always... Follow us on social media at Raincoat Report on Instagram and Twitter. Send us emails, raincoatreport at gmail.com. Rate, review, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Tell all your friends. Let them know about this circus of uh, pornography and cat wrangling. Oh. Oh, yeah, it's a real circus. Uh, (laughs) It's an electric circus, just like the one Wasp had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get one of those cod pieces that spray sparks. Oh, that's a good idea. That, um, was, that was Wasp, right? Yes, and there's also a buzzsaw in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wasp were also in uh, Dungeon Master, a real bizarre little low-budget movie from 1984. 
Uh, just know. an update for our listeners. Resi has made it down yeah. off of the cabinet. She's going after my white claw. Nope. <laughs> Resi's about to get trashed on white claw and start clawing our faces. She will be the white claw. Oh, yeah. She does have little white claws. All right. So uh, today we're going to talk about Jess Franco, like I said before. I could go on for hours and hours about Jess Franco, but I'm going to give a Cliff Notes backstory and talk about this particular era of Jess Franco. We're definitely going to be coming back to him repeatedly, um, and there's a lot to say about him, so <laughs> we'll just uh, kind of keep the focus on this narrow. Was this like his like 50th or 70th film? Uh, probably somewhere in that range. So Jess Franco, throughout his career... Um, it really depends on what you want to call a film, how many films he made. Based on the works of Stephen Thrower, which I'll reference a lot here, he wrote two books about Jess Franco, uh, Murderous Passions and Flowers of Perversion, uh, each covering a period of Jess's career, in, which uh, goes through his films and kind of goes into the production, the plot line, gives a review on all of them, talks about like unmade films, and uh, there's a few articles kind of in general about his life and all of that throughout as well. They're very dense works. Yeah, I mean, overall, each of them is like 500 pages, and they're the size of like a textbook. Like, they're very big uh, books. They cost like about what a textbook cost? Um, I think that I got them for like, 30 to 40 bucks each so they weren't quite as bad damn that's a dream i think i would pay like 250 dollars for like one textbook yeah it's not criminal like that yeah that's a whole scam but that's not what this podcast is about nope apparently that's not what steven thrower's about too so thank you steven thrower thank you but yeah, uh, going back to Stephen Thrower, uh, his estimate was in the 170-something range. I don't have the number in front of me, but uh, yeah, 170-something films. And that's like not including uh, films that were like remade like or re-edited and re-released under different names. Because if you do that, you can get well into the 200s. Um, but his prolific nature is kind of one of the things that makes his uh, filmography so interesting. Jess Franco got his start in the 50s, late 50s, mm -hmm. uh, in Spain, directing films. Uh, this is the time where the uh, the Generalissimo Generalis oh, Franco, Franco yeah. uh, no relation. Yeah, th thankfully. Uh, the Generalissimo Franco was in power. That and guy he, sucked. Yeah, he, uh, like most fascists, sucked a lot. Um, but relative to Jess Franco's output, the government was very strict about the type of material that could be made. Uh, there was some pretty significant uh, censorship, you know, content-wise about violence and sexuality, and also things, of course, uh, critical of the government. Mm -hmm. uh, there were definitely directors that were able to, you know, using metaphor and stuff, make things that were critical of the government. But obviously, if you were being uh, very uh, direct about it, you might, right. yeah. I don't know, disappear or get thrown in jail or I think in get Spain, fined really hard. I think in Spain they just had a firing squad. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I think that was it for you. Yeah. Uh, I think this movie we're going to talk about a little bit today is maybe kind of a criticism of the fascist government in a, like an indirect sense. 
It could definitely be. I think you could read it as that, which was something I, that's how I did it. Uh, Franco started making some, like, comedies and musicals, but in 1961, he made The Awful Dr. Orloff, which was his first horror film. Um, That's the whole title. You don't think it's awful. Right. Yeah. The Awful Dr. Orloff is the title. Uh, The film is not awful. It's decent. It's certainly not my favorite Franco film because it's kind of early on for him. But as a, as kind of a, a horror film that uh, referenced the classics a lot. It was it was well made, and for the early '60s, it was it was a pretty decent, good film. Um, but that really set into place uh, a lot of the tropes that would show up later in his work. Um, like I said, you know, he made nearly 200 films, you know, over 200, depending on how you want to look at the different versions. Mm-hmm. And because of that, when looking at his filmography, a lot of times it's better to look at the period that the films were made more so than just the individual films themselves because you see a lot of uh, thematic threads going right. from film to film mm-hmm. it's it's very interesting because they're much like you know the paint painters had like different area eras uh you know was it picasso had a blue period and all mm, that yes uh you know and stuff like that it's kind of like that where jess franco has these different periods but People looking back on his career as a whole um, are often pretty critical of his work. Um, Some people consider him a very bad director or a hack and all this other stuff, but I think the context around his work is very important when talking about it. You know, as the years go on, we're talking about a film that came out in 1973, so at this point he's been making films for 14, 15 years. Um... I'll say it was produced in 73. I don't yeah. remember exactly when it came out. It may have came out a year or two later. Yeah, but... I think the 74 was okay. the release year. But yeah, 73 is when it was made. During the year 1973, we'll talk about this era a little bit. So, uh, Awful Dr. Orloff started his horror films, and horror seemed to be a thread through almost all of his films afterwards, even if you wouldn't necessarily call all of them horror films. A lot of his work falls into the erotic category. Uh, And I would say this film is kind of both a horror and erotic film, as a lot of his films of this period and really the rest of his career were. Uh, The Awful Dr. Orloff did have some mild erotic elements. Uh, You know, there is a theme about prostitutes, there are dancers and stuff, but the original uh, Spanish release didn't have any nudity, but there was a French release that had some added nudity in it and kind of started that direction of his career. Mm-hmm. As the years go on, his work got more and more rooted in the erotic, although it never really lost that horror flavor to it. Yeah. Um, 1973, the year that this was uh, produced, mm-hmm. Jess Franco completed, in 1973, 11 films. Damn. That's a busy year. Yeah. he That's pretty much a film a month. Not only did he complete 11 films, he started at least three more that never got finished. So, he, Baker's dozen of a year. He had 14 films that he at least started, 11 of them actually completed. Uh, this sort of output was perhaps I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It might be his busiest year ever, but that doesn't mean that it was completely atypical. Both the year before and the year after, he had 6 to 7 films mm-hmm. uh, produced in that year. So, 
he was putting things out pretty yeah. rapid fire in this period. Yeah. Um, the world had Francomania. <laughs> Uh, if nothing else, Franco himself had Franco-mania. Yeah, definitely. So his thing was basically he just loved making movies. He wanted to always be behind the camera making something. And basically, as often as he could get money to make movies, he would make movies. And that's why year after year throughout his career, he's making multiple, multiple movies. Whereas, you know, you have your uh, Michael Bay's, your... James Cameron's and stuff. They'll the take event picture, right? You know, they'll take two to five years in between pictures to get the thing done, and you know their output. You know, over the course of like thirty years, maybe about Jess Franco's output in nineteen seventy three. It's terrible, and they're all just like a franchise deal at this point, anyway. Like right, Transformers, and I think there's like six Avatars coming out. Maybe does that sound right? <laughs> I think, I know the first one's already out, and there's two or three sequels in production. Who asked for them? I don't know. Or just Franco films. Dig them up. Right. Now, um, and I mean, you know, I I like Avatar. It's fine. It's, it's in the world of event popcorn action movies, I don't think it's any worse than anything else. You know, people get all up, like, there's... I've noticed on the internet there's a lot of, like, Marvel versus Avatar arguments and stuff. And it's like, I don't know. It's the same shit, basically. There's a lot. I think it's just there's a lot of people that just think that Marvel movies are what cinema is now. I think so. And, you know, I'm not going to go the uh, Martin Scorsese route and make the argument that it's not cinema. I'm it like, is cinema. Just but like cinema. Yeah, I don't know. It's It's that <laughs> whole... I think the argument just came from Martin Scorsese's era of auteur filmmaking and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, these Marvel films, they're they're well made. They're not bad movies. They're no. just, you know, they're very... Formulaic, I think. Formulaic in a way. I think more than anything, they're just kind of film production by committee. Yeah. And it doesn't make them bad. They're fine no, films. Like, I've not seen one that I thought was, like, bad. No. I've only seen, like, four or five of them, to be honest. But, like, they were all fun to watch. But I never, like, afterwards was like, oh, man, I love these Marvel movies. Oh. I never... I mean, because I've seen only seen four or five of them, there's got to be, like, 25 or more of them now. There's just so many of them. And not necessarily in a good way, like a Franco film, which is right. an individual piece to a large... Well... Yeah, they're more like an individual piece to a larger puzzle that they want you to keep solving. But the only the only answer at the end of that is they want your money. Franco had a beautiful patchwork puzzle. Right. He's one of those little puzzles, Abraham Lincoln, where you see him far away and you get up close and there's a million little Abraham Lincolns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. He's not, you know, just one monolithic image. So, uh, yeah, speaking more to Franco of this period, in the early 70s, he had kind of a, I guess I would describe her as a a short-term muse of sorts in Mm -hmm. Soledad Miranda, Mm -hmm. who was in several of his films of the period, uh, things like Vampiros Lesbos and uh, She Killed in Ecstasy and some other, uh, Nightmares Come at Night. he seemed really inspired by her and, you know, included her in most of his films for a short period of time, which, you know, I don't have the information in front of me, but it was probably over the course of like a year or two. But 
during production or shortly after production of one of Franco's films, uh, she died in a car accident. And then she wasn't in any of more of his films on account of her being, being dead. Yeah, that'll put your career on ice. So that that really shook up Jess Franco because he felt an attachment to her, even if there wasn't like a you know personal relationship so much. But it definitely hurt his feelings and kind of took him aback a bit. So it's around. It's shortly after this time that he met his new muse so to speak and she was his muse until the end of her life uh, and that would be lena romay mm-hmm. i'd say i'm probably more familiar with the uh lena romay films than i am uh his earlier muse I sure I, I think i came in like right around was she in venus and furs she was not in venus and furs well then i don't know who i'm thinking of <laughs> but it's uh, fine um, well, they're, they're all mysterious brunettes. Well, so in this period, Lena Romay, her first project with Franco was a film called Relax Baby, which never got completed at a release. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no real record of that, you know, as a finished product. Um, her next role for Franco, uh, her first completed role or role in a completed film was the sinister eyes of Dr. Orloff. Oh. Um, oh, it was a franchise. Yeah, it was. I'll take it back everything I said. He's <laughs> a hack just like Bay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that movie came like 10 years after the first movie. Although there might be another one in the middle. I don't remember. Just He's like, got so many movies, I can't keep them all straight. But Just like James Cameron. Right. Yeah. Disgusting. Uh, <laughs> hey, man, James Cameron made some great movies. Yeah, I wouldn't no, say Avatar was one of his great movies. It was an all right movie. Do you make Terminator 2? He made Terminator 1 and 2. He oh. made True Lies. Do you do, do an Alien? He did Aliens. That's a good one. That's yeah. the one I don't fall asleep in. All right, well. He did The Abyss, True Lies. I hate the Abyss, though. I don't know that I've seen it all the way through. I saw parts of it as a kid and thought the special effects were cool. Yeah, they're But I've been good, waiting for but... like a decade for them to put it out on Blu-ray, and they never have, so I haven't rewatched it. Thank God. Um, I don't know. It was, it was okay. It had uh, its moments. I was tricked into watching like a director's cut that was closer to three hours, oh, and yeah. I was like, I'm so tired of these people in their undersea lab and <laughs> their fucking hippie aliens that are appalled by war. I'm like, you never had a war alien. You're so much better than us. <laughs> it has cool special effects. It does. What do you think about True Lies? I never saw True Lies. I wanted uh, to as a kid because it looked funny in the trailer, but I'm always like, I'm not letting you watch that. Watch Aliens instead. It's possible that like if I rewatched it again, maybe I'd like it less or something. But as of the last time I watched it, I thought it was a great film. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Tom Arnold, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Looking hot at an older age. Yeah. It was good. I'll check it out. There are definitely many Jess Franco films I would recommend over True Lies. Okay. We'll, we'll watch all of them. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Lena Romay's first finished film with Jess Franco was The Sinister Eyes of Dr. Orloff, where she had a small part. Uh, her second film with Jess Franco was How to Seduce a Virgin, where she had a bigger secondary role in it. And... Around the same time was her third part for Jess Franco, which is Countess Perverse, the film that we're talking about today. Mm, yeah. 
So, Countess Perverse, again, was made in 1973, which was a very uh, fertile area for Jess Franco's productions. The production timeline of Jess Franco's stuff is a little tough to discern because, you know, again, he made he started at least 14 films in this year, so trying to line everything up is hard. Uh, but it appears that the production for Countess Perverse happened either during or immediately after the production of How to Seduce a Virgin. Uh, How to Seduce a Virgin is a is one of several adaptations of the Marquis de Sade's work that Jess Franco did. Yeah, and uh, featured Lena Romay as kind of like this almost mindless slave of this couple trying to take advantage of this uh, titular virgin. Mm-hmm. But in Countess Perverse, she takes a larger role. Lena Romay uh, during this time was married um, and she and Jess Franco would continue to make films for uh, a while after this while she was still married Mm -hmm. then around 75 ish uh, during the production of a film uh, Jess and Lena disappeared together just in the middle of a production Um, the story of what happened is unclear Jess Franco is known for not necessarily being totally honest in interviews. Uh, And a lot of it probably had to do with him doing shady, underhanded things with the productions of his films. Right. There's a feeling that's not really confirmed, but based on what a lot of people say is almost definitely true, um, that he would often get money to make a film, shoot that film, but simultaneously while shooting that film, shoot scenes for other films. Mm-hmm. And then he would go around and then sell that second film to a different producer, even though the original producer was paying for the production that resulted in the making of that second film. Um, That's smart. There are definitely uh, people who have said in interviews that they confronted Franco and was like, why is my character died three times in this film? <laughs> different ways. And uh, he perhaps may have paid some people off to keep their silence about the fact that he was making multiple films at the same time. Right. Um, there's definitely a bit of an improvisational uh, aspect to some of his films. Some of his films he would have a near complete script for, but some of them he would have, you know, like a five page treatment and they would kind of make up the rest as they were going along. Right. Um, so it's always, it's not always easy for the actors to figure out exactly what's going on while they're in production. That explains so much. Um, so yeah, after Lena and Jess disappeared with one another, that seemed to be the final nail in the coffin for Lena Romay's marriage because basically for a while, Jess and Lena had been seeing each other and, uh, kind of, you know, under the radar as she was still married and Jess was also still married at this period. Mm-hmm. But it's around this time that it basically came out that all of that was going on and uh, Lena and her husband separated. And I, f- I don't remember for sure, but I think Jess and his wife may have stayed together for a little bit longer. But ultimately, Jess and Lena were an item for the rest of Lena's life, at least. And Jess passed away about a year after Lena did. Uh, and he killed her? No. Uh, Lena okay, died of good. cancer in her late 50s. And okay. Jess, 
Jess was considerably older. He was in oh, his, yeah, like, 70s. Was, yeah. Uh, but he... What a creep. Yeah. You know. <laughs> he was probably in his late 30s, maybe early 40s, and Lena was in her early 20s during all of this mm-hmm. uh, this period of his life. So anyway, uh, Lena Romay would go on to be in probably over half of his films overall, considering he made a bunch before this, but... He made a whole lot afterwards, and of those, she was in a very high percentage of them. And in a lot of the ones that she wasn't actually in, she uh, served other roles like editing and stuff like that. Um, this period of Jess's uh, work, you know, again, he made he made or at least started 14 films this year. He was shooting stuff in a week or two and then shipping it off to people, and there were definitely periods of time where he was making films, and then he would ship it off to an editor, and then he was just hands-off with it after that. And it was up to the editor to try to figure out how to piece the film together from there, uh, which is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you're making 14 <laughs> films a year, you probably don't have a lot of time for post-production. No. Um, get them out. Get, them, get asses in the seats in the theaters. So the production timeline for this film's a little hazy. Uh some people report that it was produced in as few as five days, and some people say it might have been like two weeks, but, you know, when you consider the production timeline of a Hollywood film being months at a time, this is some rapid-fire stuff. And yep. even if you want to be critical of some of the things that Jess Franco does in his film, uh, you have to give him credit for being able to make films in such tight deadlines that work at at least some level yeah this one fires on most cylinders i think so speaking to this film in particular this film countess perverse is a take on the most dangerous game Mm -hmm. probably influenced mostly by the 1932 film version of it more so than the original uh story yeah um i've actually seen that version oh yeah yeah I think uh, it was on the Criterion channel at one point, and uh, I gave it a watch. Apparently, the version of it that exists nowadays, which is a little over an hour long, I believe, yeah. um, is not the complete film, because uh-huh. uh, when it was first screened, audiences were horrified by the most dangerous game. Particularly, there were some scenes of human heads in the trophy room and stuff uh-huh. that led to a bunch of people walking out, so the distributors ended up cutting out some of it. And some of that footage is lost forever, or at least at this point hasn't turned back up. People really used to be so sensitive about, yeah. about blood and gore, which I'm glad we're over that now uh, in general. Yeah. I don't know. Movies from the 50s are just boring. There's not enough uh, of anything because of that old uh, Hayes Code. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like I I'm always hesitant about films made before seventy or so. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like I, I I know I'm only gonna get a certain level of exploitation out of them, I guess. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be bad because there are many great films in that era. Yeah. But I always go in knowing that there's certain things I'm not going to get out of them and that's always a bummer. Yeah. You could just look at um What's a great film? What's a film of the 50s that you love? Uh, 50s. Um, Nothing. I mean, there's like 
Japanese stuff like Rashomon or the original Godzilla. No, it has to be American. American? Eh. They're cutting everything. Maybe some like like William Castle stuff. Maybe. Yeah, but his yeah, House on Haunted Hill is great, but that's like I don't know. Wouldn't it be better if the ghosts were real? Yeah, it'd be better if the ghosts were real and we saw a bunch of tits and like some guy got beheaded on screen and blood sprayed everywhere. Yeah. But, you know. Why didn't Jess Franco make House on Haunted Hill? Because he was an American. Exactly. Why is his name spelled like Jesus, but it's pronounced Jess? Tell us about that. (laughs) Jess Franco was called Jess kind of as an abbreviation of his actual name. His name is Jesus Franco, but uh, he was called Jess Franco because he did not... He thought his name seemed absurd in a way because of the Generalissimo Franco and also, you know, Jesus being like Jesus, Jesus Christ. So he thought his name being a combination of those two things seemed a bit absurd. So he ended up taking on the moniker of Jess Franco. Uh, He also took on several other monikers over the years. At the time, it was, you know, he was putting out 14 films a year producers didn't want to have you know a director making that many films so he went under different pseudonyms as well uh he went under the name clifford brown at some point which is also the name of a jazz musician he kind of just stole that um some of the export uh distributors renamed him jess frank f-r-a-n-k um just frank yeah (laughs) but uh yeah it's a it's a tangled mess um, what a tangle web we weave when first we practice to deceive. <laughs> Just Franco wrote that line. He did. Yeah. Um, another key thing that was kind of added to the story uh, from the, you know, that wasn't in the most dangerous game was the theme of cannibalism. Uh, cannibalism was something that was really starting to get more and more common in film and around this period. It was popping off in Europe. Uh, in 72 and early 73, we had stuff like Lindsay's Man from Deep River, which is, you know, one of the early cannibal films. Gary Sherman's Death Line, which I believe was a British production. Yeah. You know, stuff like that's going on. We also had the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, which uh, crashed in the Andes on October 13th, 1972, and the crew wasn't rescued until December 22nd. Uh, and they had to result to necro-cannibalism. So it was something in the news as well. Okay. It's in the water. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, so, you know, uh, it, it's something that uh, Stephen Thrower went into in uh, Murderous Passions, uh, the first of his books, uh, when talking about this film. But Jess Franco's style was a, especially at this period, was a very... I would call it psychedelic and uh, surreal style. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of what makes his film so watchable to me because, like, if the music was different, if the camera work was different, if the direction was different, mm-hmm. these movies could easily turn boring real quick. Uh, but there's something about the confluence of all of those things together in Jess's work that makes stuff like this fascinating to me. I'd agree with that. That's a good assessment of uh, what he brings to any particular film. Right. Um, he, you know, 
his retelling of the tales of Frankenstein are uh, <laughs> are quite different from the source material. They're very Franconian. Franconian, yes. Franconian. All right, so we'll take a quick break here, and then we'll circle back around and talk about Countess Perverse. How's that uh, White Claw treating you? It's gone. Oh. How's that margarita treating you? Should we have Should we have made more drinks? No, I think um, I'll be okay. Okay. I'm going to throw this. Okay, throw it. I made it. Nothing but... Trash bag. Trash bag. Yeah. Beautiful pile of trash. It's living the trash dream. Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, that's my fly. I want it back, please. It crawled out of his skull. Yeah, it crawled out of my skull and into my heart. <laughs> Got a bad case of heart flies. Did Stephanie give Rezzy a haircut, too? She looks, she looks like she's been trimmed. Uh, she has not. Uh, we held her down and brushed out a bunch of mats that were in her hair earlier. Okay. Uh, she was very pissed. Oh, I understand. That's probably why she decided to ruin the show. Uh, yeah, she's <laughs> she's got a bad attitude. Yeah. All she, your cats do, except Violet. Violet's usually got a pretty good attitude. Sometimes she just becomes infuriating. I can understand that. She's very, uh... She's an immovable object. Sometimes I'm, like, trying to go to bed, and she'll just come up and start clawing the side of the bed, and I'm like, stop it. Stop yeah. it. Yeah, mom's kitten gets inside the couch and like claws at my back through like the bottom <laughs> cushion it is terrifying and she did it all last night because i'm watching her pets oh okay yeah so i would wake up like randomly with the cat just attacking me <laughs> i don't know what she wanted probably to be fed because my mom spoils the cat oh yeah are you staying at your mom's yes my cats have a bowl of dry food they eat but this mother fucking cat you gotta feed it wet through wet food three times a day oh wow that's a lot of work yeah and i'm like why does this cat need so much wet food i don't know that's that's better treatment than i get yeah i don't even get wet food usually once a day yeah otherwise you're just chewing cheerios and yeah (laughs) i just eat dry bits of ground (laughs) <laughs> you know little leaves mud chips things have gotten rough since you lost your job yeah i'm a druid now <laughs> i must it's commune it. with the earth all right so let's talk a little bit about 1973's countess perverse okay countess perverse opens with a man looking out over the beach with binoculars yes towards the water uh clad all in denim this uh, man is the character Bob, played by Robert Woods. Uh, he is joined uh, outside his home by Moira. Also clad all in denim. Uh, at this point, she is in a chocolate-colored bikini. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, she gets... Sorry. 
She gets uh, denimed out later. Okay. Uh, why can't I go to IMDb? Uh, your internet's out. This is a nightmare. It's Vanessa Redgrave that plays Myra. All right. So, yeah. Mara played by uh, Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah. Bob and his wife are sitting outside their home. Uh, Bob's looking towards the beach with some binoculars. And he looks and he sees this uh, nude woman washed up on the beach. Uh, He calls his wife, Mara, to come over and look. Mara is played by Tanya Bousselier. I was pretty close. (laughs) Uh, uh, So the two run out to the beach and we get credits on the screen while they examine the body uh, on this cut of the film. The directing credit is Clifford Brown. Uh, again, one of Jess Franco's uh, pseudonyms. Stolen from a jazz man. Stolen from a jazzman. Uh, Jess Franco, early in his career, played jazz music at clubs and stuff, so that's kind of where his fascination with jazz comes from. Uh, oh. And probably why there's such a big focus on uh, the music in his films. Uh, in this film in particular... Uh, atypically for his work most of this is just french catalog music that they found you know just in whatever library the production company had right Uh, but they were good choices oh yeah it it goes berserk several times in a way i really enjoy yeah but in a lot of his films uh he and daniel white do the music uh originally and it's very good as well but the, the music here is good so the man and the woman bob and uh moira uh, pick up the woman on the beach and carry her into their home. They are both clad in denim at this point. Uh, once they get into the home, I feel like Mara isn't clad in denim yet. No, no, she was on the beach and then she gets inside and she's just gone. Okay. There wasn't some consistency between shots. Uh, there is a lot of inconsistency between shots in this film yeah, in general. So okay. we won't focus too much on the clothes, but they randomly come and go. Yes. Um, So Bob lays the naked woman on their couch and uh, Mara lays a fur coat over her. Uh, The woman starts stirring. This woman's name is Kali. Uh, She is never named in the film. Uh, She is played by an actress named Kali Hansa. Okay. In fact, uh, Robert Woods, who plays Bob, lived with uh, Kali Hansa for about a year or so when he was... uh, working uh in france this is in france no in spain he oh. lived with her in spain this might this was shot actually this was shot in spain too oh, okay the, but it's in french this is a french production the film is in french, french. but it was shot in spain. it was shot in spain but it never would have gotten a release in spain how international yes very international uh anyhow So she starts to, Kali starts to stir on the couch saying no and talking about a house on an island. And she says that they're going to kill me. And she talks about how she escapes. So now she is telling them a story, but she's like semi-conscious and like telling all of this in like this very despair filled voice. So as she's narrating, we see her being boated to an island we get a lot of like very uh ominous shots of like rocks and stuff like Mm -hmm. that 
Uh, it's explained that her twin sister went missing, so she was going to find her. She notes that her sister was scared of the island um, and that the rocks were a warning of death, but she had to go on. She's not really dressed like she's going into certain danger. No, not at all. Her shirt's wide open. Yeah, uh, <laughs> she looks like she's ready for a picnic. Right. Um, an interesting note that uh, Stephen Thrower picked up on in his work, he talked about how uh, during this scene, she puts her arm around the uh, boat guy, uh, the guy driving the boat, uh, as if they're friends or something. Yeah. But the narration says that the the captain wouldn't get close to the island, so she had to swim the rest of the way there. Yes. Um, and so it seems like maybe there wasn't a personal relationship between the two. It's one of those things that probably wasn't really thought out while they were shooting it. They just mm -hmm. shot a bunch of stuff. And she was throwing herself at the boat captain, and he wasn't having it. Yeah, he's he was like, like, get out, you swim. Yeah, you swim to your cursed isle. I'm going <laughs> to go back and make a living as a simple fisherman. Right. I'm going to not die. So uh, we see her coming up at on the beach because she had to swim the rest of the way, apparently. Uh, and she's climbing up. Um, and then she approaches these very lavish staircases leading up to this crazy-looking house on this island. Yeah, it's like a kind of like a brutalist sort of architecture. It looks wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's a lot this, of crazy opposing angles and things like that. Yeah, this house is called Xanadu. Okay. Uh, it's in Calpe, Spain. So that's interesting. So you said he used it in another film too, didn't he? Yeah, it was in uh, "She Killed in Ecstasy," okay. an earlier film with Soledad Miranda. She notes that it was like a cemetery, and she felt like she was being uh, watched. And then we cut immediately from there to a view of the Countess, the Countess Zaroff, played by Alice Arno, mm -hmm. uh, watching her with binoculars. Um, she kind of walks away as Kali makes her way further up the stairs before she's seen. She reaches a certain point and the camera pans over and we get to see the house proper from there and get to see the crazy architecture here. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that Jess Franco is really excellent at, is mm -hmm. picking locations. Yeah, uh, His films were crazy low budget, again, you know, produced in a number of days. But one of the things that gives his film a lot of production value for little cost is the fact that he's always really good at picking locations. Right. He also has a tendency to take different locations and meld them together with the editing to where they look like they're the same place. Yeah. But it's really like two or three surreal locations that are in different places that are just cut together to look like the same place. Do you know if that staircase that comes later, is that part of this house, or do you think It that's... is not, but it is part of a building on the same island. Okay, that island was... That island shouldn't exist with all its crazy rich people houses. Yeah, apparently, like, the building that the uh, red staircase that we're about to see is in, mm -hmm. it's called... Um, and I didn't get it in text form. I just heard it in an interview, so I might be getting this long, but it's like... La Maria Roja. Okay. Um, something to that the, effect. The Red the red Maria. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, apparently there's like condominiums in that building now, and they're like the equivalent of like $350,000, $400,000 each. Damn. Well. Um, but I mean, you know, it's a crazy architectural weird thing. 
So and that's all in Spain. Yeah, Let's it's go to in Spain. It's in Calpe, Spain. Now the the fascists don't run it. I think I'm not 100 percent sure who's doing who's running Spain right now. Let's go. There's there's a lot of political turmoil going on there. Yeah. Um. Some of them want to be different countries. Yeah, it's very complicated. I don't I don't know I don't know. We could probably go and not have it be a big deal. We're gonna get executed. Hopefully not. They're, hopefully they don't listen to our podcast first, because then they'll call us sinners and we'll be yeah. sent to the Inquisition. Oh, no. Because that's still going on over there, I think. God damn it. They're going to screw my thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> so after we get that shot of the house, we immediately cut from that to uh, Kali walking downstairs with the Countess Zaroff and the Count Zaroff. Who hasn't even been introduced yet. No. Uh, and Kali is also wearing different clothes than she was in the other scene. Yes. Again, Stephen Thrower kind of noted the inconsistencies here and kind of asked, well, were there other scenes that were supposed to be here that were cut? Mm-hmm. Or is it just, you know, kind of poor planning here? Um, overall, it doesn't really matter, but no. it's just something worth noting. It's one of those things that adds to the weird dreamlike quality of any Franco film. So, yeah, you would think that there might have been a scene where they were introduced or something, but no, they're just walking together. I could see where that would have been cut out. Right. You keep the running time tight. But, uh, yeah, they're going down these really wild red stairs mm-hmm. and uh, in basically leading the, her into their home. So she notes that they invited her to stay with them and she became their guest. So we cut from there to a scene of them eating. Uh, the Count is serving meat. Uh, it kind of looks beef-like. It's mystery meat. Yeah, it's a mystery meat. So, Kali compliments the food, noting it as exquisite and unusual, different and unique. The Countess notes that they're used to it now, and the Count says that his wife, the Countess, introduced him to this type of meat. So, the Count is uh, played by Howard Vernon, who is in tons of Jess Franco movies, uh, he has taken a lot of horror roles over the years, and he has a very unique look to him, and he's he's a really good actor. I yeah, like him I a like, lot. Yeah, I really enjoyed him in this film. Um, so yeah, he's Count Rabor Zaroff. Rador. Rador. Oh, yeah, it's Rador. Rador. Yeah, I wrote it down. Sometimes I, I think Yeah, IMDB I had... has it R-A-B-O-R, but it's R-A-D-O-R in the subtitles, Rador. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Alice Arno is playing Countess Ivana Zaroff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zaroff is taken from the most dangerous game. Uh, in the book, it's General Zaroff, and in the uh, film, it's Count Zaroff. Uh, and in this case, it's the Countess who seems to be mostly in charge here. Yes. So, yeah, the Count notes that his wife introduced him to this type of meat. The Countess says, sometimes us women have to push their men to try new things. Kali asks what kind of meat this is, and the Count giggles. The Countess scolds him, and he says that she'll find out soon. Um, Says that the Countess will enjoy telling her. She says that it's wild game she hunts for herself, and uh, Rador cooks it. So Kali continues eating. Um, They invite her into their lounge for coffee. The Countess says uh, about her and uh, the Count, We share many tastes. We enjoy hunting, fine dining, and succulent meals. 
it's good to share one's pleasures. So Kali marvels at these heads mounted on the walls, a lot of animal heads. The Countess notes that her husband loves them. Um, she notes a few of them are animal heads. And then they pan up to show a weird withered human head. And from she, Amazonia. Yeah, she says it's a head from Amazonia. Okay. So we get an abrupt cut from there it's to... It's a smash cut to a nipple. Yeah. <laughs> it's a smash cut to uh, Kali laying naked in bed, no cover over her or anything. And uh, the Countess walks into the room clothed and crawls into the bed with her. Kali asks what they want, and the Countess says, We want you. Take her! Take her! So the Count grabs her arms as Ivana, the Countess, undresses Kali, and the two start kissing all over their guest as she protests and Wait, has to be let go. She undresses her? Maybe not. She was naked, but who knows? No, Maybe okay, close. wait. Okay. The Count grabs Kali's arms as Ivana undresses herself. Okay, got you. And uh, then Ivana, the Countess, and uh, the Count Everybody's start naked. kissing all over Kali, the guest, uh, as Kali protests and asks to be let go. So... The music's kind of doing these horror cues and then transition into 70s mm. jazzy, psych, almost psychedelic stuff. Some tribal drums going on, too. Yeah. There's a whole lot going on. I liked, uh, I like this part of the music. It's like a sexy nature documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kali stops fighting, and uh, the Count gets off the bed, and uh, the Countess is making out with Kali, kissing down her body and uh, going down on her. I wondered where he went. I didn't see him step off, I guess. <laughs> I was like, where'd he go? But yeah. Um, so then the Countess gets off the bed and backs up. Uh, but Kali is still kind of thrashing around naked in bed alone. Yeah, she's really feeling it. Um, even when no one else is there, she's, I guess, enjoying this. <laughs> so um, the count comes over and sits on the bed and starts making out with Kali and fingering her a bit as uh, the countess watches from across the room or kind of like towards a hallway maybe I don't know she's at the end of the area watching uh, and then the countess barks take her and the count uh, mounts her missionary and uh, starts banging her uh, it's worth noting that all of the sex in this is softcore yeah so you see a lot um, of old man butt uh, so, yeah, you get to see Howard Vernon's butt and balls. Yeah. Um, I don't think you get a good shot of his penis, but you can definitely see his balls from behind. Yeah, they're they're danglers. They're danglers. Uh, you know, he's an older band, so this is, you know, not the uh, most erotic ass to be looking at. But it's interesting that, you know, Howard Vernon, who's been in some classy films and some not-so-classy films, has no problem getting balls naked and doing all this. No. He's probably having a good time. Yeah. Getting to kiss all over these uh, hot women all the time for Jess Franco. A um, bunch of perverts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's going at Kali, and uh, the Countess is yelling, Harder, harder. Uh, Kali at this point is now into it and yells that she's coming. We cut straight from there to a woman's body behind uh, some flames. Uh, at this point, we're given the uh, impression that they're cooking a woman. Mm -hmm. We get uh, some more shots of this trophy room that they're in, and it stops on a human head. 
we cut to Kali, yeah. the guest there. She's standing and chained up. And she's crying out in the horror of all of this. Uh, and then we cut back to her on the couch talking to the couple from the beginning, Bob and Mara. So Bob asks his wife for a syringe. And he tells Kali to calm down and he injects her with something before handing the syringe back to Mara. So Bob asks Mara, what now? And Mara says take her back to the island well they're in cahoots with the countess Kali is unconscious at this point and Bob picks her up and walks away from here we cut to a scene where the count and someone else far away are flashing light with mirrors at each other Yeah, uh, I'm assuming this is Bob and the count flashing back and forth communicating that they captured Kali and are giving her back so this is where we come to the realization that Bob and his wife are providing people to the Countess and the Count for their twisted games. But why? But why? One of the things that Stephen Thrower noted in reviewing the film was that it's interesting that they didn't really go for a horrific reveal that the couple is working for the Count and Countess, which would be kind of an obvious move to make here. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a choice that just decided not to make here. So it just kind of comes out of nowhere and it really isn't played up as a big twist or reveal, even though it is. It kind of is. Yeah. So you don't know who any of these people are or any of their motivations um, beyond what you've seen so far. Right. So after this scene of uh, mirror communication, Bob walks back into the house and gets on the phone. He asked somebody on the other end for Sylvia Aguado. Um, he off the phone, uh, you know, puts his hand over the receiver and explains to his wife uh, that the Countess wants another victim. So he gets back on the phone and asks Sylvia on the other end if she wants to come over for lunch and they make plans. Uh, Mar- After the phone call, Mora tells Bob not to be scared. They need to do all of this if they want to get away and forget about all of this. Bob says he hopes it all works out. So um, Bob and his wife are, for some reason, being forced to do this in some way. But they have some sort of hope for uh, a future where they don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. It's not really fully fleshed out, but, you know, whatever. It, it's enough. So we cut to another shot on a boat going towards this island. Um, at first, we don't see occupants here, but we see these uh, big rocks around the island that we saw in the earlier scene. Uh, funny thing, earlier on when Kali was coming to the island, uh, there's a shot where you can see the cameraman's hand at some point, probably just Franco's hand, because mm-hmm. a lot of the time he was holding the camera and shooting everything himself. We don't see that this time. Okay. Um, but we cut straight from the shots of the weird rocks going towards the island to uh, Sylvia, played by Lena Romay, mm-hmm. looking out on a beach and talking to Bob and Mara. She tells them that they're lucky to live on this island, and she explains to them that she's been staying near the coast, but she's been staying in a cheap hotel with no view of the sea. Um, she explains she's on a 10-day vacation. So, through some chit-chat, Bob asks Sylvia to move in with them while she's staying there. Uh, Mara says they could all three have fun together. Bob walks off, and as he leaves, uh, Mara asks Sylvia if she likes Bob. Sylvia says he's nice, but Mara asks her if that's all. 
She says she's not the jealous type and that she likes her husband to have fun. Sometimes she might even join in. Sylvia asks her what she means before Bob calls Sylvia and Sylvia runs away. So Sylvia walks into the home and Bob says that he loves her and wants her to move in while uh, Moira, his wife, is watching from the doorway. Sylvia tells her she can't move in and calls him crazy. The wife says, though, that he is crazy. That's why I love him, and you will too. <laughs> um, Mara tells her to stop worrying and get her things, so Sylvia finally agrees. She says, all right, but let her go get her things. Um, she tells Bob that she'll be back in a half an hour and leaves. Mora tells Bob that that was easy and also that Sylvia is so dumb. <laughs> uh, Bob gets around a lot for a guy who dresses like uh, Mike Brady. He sure does. He's yeah. uh, he's getting quite a bit of action. Yeah. Man. What an era. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to wear something that dopey and still <laughs> draw on the pussy. He's, you know, he's the master of the Canadian tuxedo. Sure is. So is his <laughs> wife sometimes. Yeah. Here and there. Here and there. Um, I have a thought about that, but I'll, we'll get to it in a little bit. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Bob's played by uh, Robert Woods, mm -hmm. who uh, is an American actor, but he uh, made his biggest name for himself in Italy, doing a lot of westerns and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, one of his kind of uh conditions for doing these films was that he wasn't going to do any uh n any of his own nudity and uh you know certainly no explicit sex scenes and he was a little frustrated that after jess finished the film some of the distributors added in sex scenes uh that were supposed to be him doing these right. things even if they weren't actually him doing these but in this film, I believe, you only really get to see him making out and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't think you ever really see him in the... Throes full, of passions. Yeah, in his full glory. So we cut to another boat scene, and we see Sylvia... Well, we see the boat drifting towards a populated area, area, and then Sylvia walking into a hotel. And that's all we see of Sylvia in the hotel before we cut back to her back on the island again. Right. Um, there's another cut of this film where there's a lot more hotel stuff. We'll talk about that after we get through this. Okay. So Sylvia's back on the island with the couple. Sylvia and Bob are dancing while Moira's drinking lemonade further down the deck with her feet kind of up on a rail, drinking, yeah, drinking lemonade or juice or something and watching. He's drinking vodka and lemonade, getting wasted on an island. <laughs> Maybe it's a margarita. Perhaps. So Sylvia and Bob are dancing. We cut inside the house and uh, we see Maura stripping naked. Uh, and there's a doorway leading outside where we still see Bob and Sylvia dancing uh, in view of this. She lays down naked in the bed and calls Sylvia into the room. Uh, Bob stays back and kind of watches as Sylvia walks into the room and still dressed starts making out with Mara in the bed. Uh, they pause a moment and then Sylvia starts licking and suck, sucking on Mara's nipples. Uh, we pan over from there to see Bob smoking in the doorway and he turns away for a moment and then turns around and walks into the room and starts unbuttoning his coat. Um, we see Sylvia continue to lick and kind of suck down Mora's body. 
Bob says that's enough and it's his turn now. He jerks his wife out of the bed and throws her across the room and calls her a dirty bitch. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, it seems like it seems like they're all on the same side in this. I don't know what made him explode. <laughs> right. He, it feels like he could have asked nicely and gotten he the same results. Just really wanted to get his dick wet and he wasn't willing to wait. Yeah, he was very impatient. So, uh, Mara's just kind of watching from the floor after being tossed across the room. Um, but she's still looking on fondly as Bob and Sylvia are making out. And then we cut to a scene of a boat crossing the water. So, we don't get to see the culmination of that. No. But, uh, Sylvia, Bob, and Mara are on this boat. Uh, Bob's driving it, and Sylvia's kind of sitting on the boat with Mara laying down in front of her. Mara and Bob are in denim. Uh, yes, I'm pretty sure they're in denim here. So here was a thought I had. Do you think like they wear the denim as part of like like island security uniform? Perhaps. Because it seems like they mostly put it on when they're investigating like escaped slave girl <laughs> business. Uh, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of it's it, the countess and count demand this. Yeah, they are of noble lineage and they demand their obeisance. That's a word. Obedience? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And obedience. Yes. I'm going to look it up. Okay. You tell me about the movie. I'll tell you the definition in a minute. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can stop listening and do that, and then I'll keep going. Uh, so um, there's a lot of these boat scenes in the film, as you can already tell from our description here. This one's fairly long. There's this weird, trippy, kind of almost Pink Floydish soundtrack going on as they drift towards this other island. Uh, but as they get closer, the music turns a bit sinister as they approach that cursed island. Uh, we can see the Count and Countess watching through binoculars. We get some cu cuts back and forth, and uh, finally we see Bob, uh, Mara, and Sylvia nude walking out from the beach into the water and splashing around a bit. Now, was that his dick, or was that like a stunt dick? Uh, that's... I believe that was his dick. Just now that I think about it, you do see his dick. Yeah, I just remember that when you we were talking about yeah them. I guess doing he was okay frolic. being naked, but not being in a sex scene. Yeah, he was okay to just frolic on the beach nude. That was fun. Maybe Franco just filmed that stuff and didn't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it looks like they're having a good old time, naked, splashing around the beach. That seems like a good vacation. So the Count and Countess who are watching with binoculars end up walking back up to their house up the crazy stairs and uh, the Countess pauses for a moment uh, looking back before heading into the home. We cut back to the trio coming out of the water and running up the beach nude and they kind of crash down onto the beach together. Uh, Mara tells them to get dressed because they're waiting for us. So they end up walking up the stairs, and at a certain point when Sylvia sees the house, we get kind of a horror music cue, and she stops, noting that the house scares her. Bob tells her not to be silly, and they continue up the stairs with Bob putting his arm around her, kind of urging her forward. We see them descending the weird red stairs into the Count and Countess's house uh, with them. Again, not an introduction scene. We just see them coming in. Yeah, it's very abrupt. Uh, then we cut to meat being cooked over a fire, and we see the whole group together eating at a table. Ivana, the countess, notes that Sylvia is beautiful. Isn't she, Rador? 
He notes that she's charming. A real jewel for a collector like me, he says. The countess goes on, continuing to be complimentary. The count calls her sweet and tender <laughs> and asks how old she is. Bob interjects and says, she's here and beautiful. What does it matter? <laughs> it's a weird... That's weird that that's the comment that starts to set Bob off here. Yeah. The countess gets on Bob for speaking to the count that way. Says they just wanted to know more about their guests. Uh, Maura tells Bob to stop being rude. The count says that he doesn't keep grudges and offers Bob the best piece of meat. Bob says he doesn't want it. No, he doesn't want your meat or your orgies. He just wants to go and wear bell bottoms in peace. <laughs> so Maura apologizes, saying that Bob hasn't been himself. Uh, Countess says that Bob may want to leave, saying, Your illness might prove dangerous. Bob says he'll be fine, and the Count says Bob struggles with the pleasures of the flesh and smirks as he chews more meat. Bob gets mad, saying he's off and that I want no part of your vile orgies, as you said. Yeah. Uh, so he heads up the stairs, and we see him walking down the walkway from the house uh, down those stairs. And he stops and turns to look and then kind of heads away from there. So back at the table, the Countess asks Sylvia if she likes their favorite meat, as she puts it. The Count asks her not to make the girl lie because this meat's rather tough, not up to their usual standards. But next time... Oh, sorry. You won't be here. <laughs> Sylvia asks why, and the Countess says it's possible uh, that she will have left by then. Sylvia asks if she's upset them, and the Count says no. The Countess says that Sylvia will have already left by the time they start cooking. The Count says that's a fact. Already left indeed, he says, before starting to snicker a little bit. Uh, the Count can't help himself but to be arch, and the Countess is trying to cover up that the whole time. <laughs> so Sylvia's looking back and forth across the table, but hasn't noticed the supervillain behavior of her hosts. No. So she smirks slightly because everybody else is laughing and she doesn't get the joke, yeah. I guess. That's why they called her dumb earlier. They weren't wrong. So there's some quiet time at the table. And then we cut back to shots of the beach. The Count, the Countess, and Sylvia are looking out at the beach. Sylvia notes that it's beautiful. Uh, notice that Maura has kind of disappeared at this point. Uh-huh. Um, I guess she went off with Bob. Sort of. It's, it's noted later... I'll get back to it. Okay. Uh, she's mentioned again, but she's not seen until later. So yeah, Sylvia mentions that the beach is beautiful. The Countess says she prefers the beauty of the human body. They all walk away, and then we cut to night shots of the beach, and then the interior of the house and uh, a bedroom where Sylvia is getting undressed. She takes her top off, and as she's doing that, she's startled as the Countess walks in wearing a black transparent robe thingy. Um, she tells Sylvia she brought her something to wear in bed. Um, Sylvia asks if Mara is in bed already. So Mara hasn't left the island. Oh, okay. We just don't see her on the island again. The Countess says that she is in bed already. Uh, Sylvia says she likes Mara. The Countess asks Sylvia if she'd like to play with her, her being Mara. Sylvia says she already has. Uh, the Countess finishes undressing Sylvia completely. She says she'll help her forget about Mora and that she'll be back once Red Rador, uh, the Count, is asleep. They kiss lightly, and then the Countess leaves the room. Sylvia seems pretty chill with being undressed by a stranger. 
Yeah. So I'm just going to assume this is a French or Spanish custom where if you're the guest in a home, the host will undress you. Uh, I guess so. Yeah. I think it's worth kind of noting the time frame of all this as well. This is really on the back of the sexual revolution. Um, when you look at films of this time period, this is, you know, around the time of the Jalo boom, mm -hmm. uh, around the time in the U.S. and even abroad that pornography is kicking off. Um, this is about around the time that a lot of the exploitation films are blowing up. So you see a lot of sexuality of films uh, in films of the era. And I think that it's uh, kicked off by that kind of late 60s free love spirit that was going around. And this is kind of the remnants of that going through the 70s. Yeah. It becomes more interesting when you think about that simultaneously you're seeing the rise of the women's right movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the protesting through that is about, you know, the sexualization of women and stuff like that. So you see these kind of two eras fighting against each other. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that uh, conflict is what led to, you know, later on as the years went on and into the 80s, there being a lot less sexuality in these films. Because uh, you have the people from the free love era aging out and you have the people of the you know, more women's right era, mm -hmm. you know, uh, taking their place uh, in society as the young people around. Um, you know, that's not to say that the two ideals are completely uh, incompatible because there's definitely some crossover there. But by and large, there was a lot of conflict in between the two schools of thought that I think really affects uh, not only film, but different uh, art of the time period. So... I think that there is definitely a spirit of kind of free love here because Sylvia is, you know, all aboard for all of this sexual weirdness. Uh, Kali was less so, but then again, she was pretty forcefully raped more or less. So yeah. uh, it's kind of understandable. Uh, this was at least framed as a positive consensual thing, even though there might be some more uh, sinister motives under the surface. So, yeah, Sylvia picks up the sleep clothing that the Countess left her, and then we cut to another exterior shot of the house, and then back in, uh, Sylvia is waiting naked on the bed, or at least I think she's wearing the rope thingy, but exposing her body completely. Um, and we see the Countess join her in the bed. We also, as uh, the Countess joins Sylvia in bed, we see the Count behind a curtain watching and smoking. Uh, we get some Pink Floyd-like drummy music going on as they kind of make out hard, and the Count seems to be digging it while he's smoking. Uh, the Countess is sucking on Sylvia's nipple and then moves her way down Sylvia's body and kisses and licks all over her. Uh, Sylvia is behind the Countess bent over <laughs> in the next shot, and she pulls up the Countess's robe to expose her ass and starts kissing and looking all over her ass and her upper legs yeah. as the Countess is moaning and the Count that's, is loving himself watching all of this. That's what the rich want you to do. They just want you to kiss their asses all day. Yeah. Um, but it's also the, I don't know, it was my favorite sex scene of the film. I yeah. think it was probably the best. I don't know. I just enjoyed it the most. Yeah. I um, guess I don't have much to say. Yeah, uh, and I think that like giving this sort of uh, rundown of the film... It's hard to really express the surreal nature of all these scenes, the yeah. camera work, uh, the 
the change in focus of things. Um, and that kind of combines with the music that we commented on, um, but can only comment on so much to really give you the idea of it. Uh, but it leads to a really neat, almost psychedelic type situation. It's very cool. And it's uh, a theme in Jess Franco's work through uh, a lot of his career. Uh, these types of scenes that, again, might be boring in another film, but just the confluence of all those indep- independent uh, factors uh, helps make the thing very cool. So we cut to another shot of the outside of the home, and then we cut back in and see Sylvia in bed. She's in that robe, but it's open, so again, we can see all of her nudity. Which is, and it's great because it's Lena Romay, and mm-hmm. she's beautiful. Yeah. So she wakes up hearing something, and we see her walk out into the lounge area, and she sees the Count and Countess, but they're standing over a woman's body, and they're cutting it up. So Sylvia cowers behind the sofa and watches a little bit and then walks towards them. The Countess spots Sylvia and asks her what she's doing down there. The body being butchered here is Kali, the guest from the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Count tells the Countess that she's just curious, and he talks about how hard it is uh, to cut off a human head, uh, which from what I hear is very difficult. Sylvia keeps walking forward um, cautiously. The Count tells her to come help them. The Countess says it's a fine trophy for her collection. Sylvia says it's monstrous. The Countess says that her dead guest's body is tender, her breasts are superb, and that's her favorite part. Sylvia asks if they eat human flesh, and the Count says, of course, and so do you. And he explains that that's what dinner was. Yeah. I guess this scene's supposed to be like a big reveal, but I guess it's really just a big reveal for Lena Romay. Yeah, I feel like the audience has to know what's going on here. I mean, it's it's... It's pretty explicitly told during the first part, really. But yeah, Sylvia is uh, shocked by all of this because, again, she wasn't picking up on all of the sinister stuff happening (laughs) at dinner. She's a dum-dum. What can you say? So, Sylvia says it's insane and horrible, and the Count laughs as we get shots of the trophy wall, including the human heads there. Mm -hmm. The Count says, Come, my child, don't upset yourself. Reject nothing that gives pleasure. So this is a dip back into the Marquis de Sade stuff that Jess Franco often digs into, including the film that was made either directly before or during this production, Mm -hmm. How to Seduce a Virgin, which is more of a direct adaptation of de Sade, even if it deviates quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, This has some thematics that line up with the sod. It's about yeah. libertines seeking pleasure in their own way at the expense of other people. Right. So in that sense, it's definitely Sodian in a way, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, less direct. Yes. The Count asks Sylvia to admit that she enjoyed the meat. Sylvia faints. Uh, the Count says she's dim, <laughs> but she's certainly juicy as he comes up and examines her body. Yeah, uh, the team, the scene overall, it's pretty good at like, um, even though you already know they're cannibals, it's still like a pretty tense scene. Yeah. Up until the point where she faints like a goat. <laughs> <laughs> the Count says they're going to have fun. Another fine feast day. 
Yum, yum, yum. So the Countess continues massaging the dead woman, and then we cut to some shots outside with a reddish sky. Um, and we see, again, a woman's body behind the fi- a fire. This is, I believe, supposed to be Holly being cooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Count's watching on. Um, the woman being cooked, we see a good shot of her vagina through the flames. Yes. Um, so Something I'll <laughs> say about Jess Franco is he's the only director I've ever heard his work being described as uh, gynecological. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it might have been Stephen Thrower referring to in one of his films as his work in this film being very gynecological. <laughs> uh, but certainly for somebody who largely doesn't do hardcore pictures, it's an interesting description of his work. Yeah. There's loves, a lot of... He loves pubic hair, though. He sure does. Um, but there's also stuff like, uh, I would say, Shining Sex, mm-hmm. in which uh, Lena Romay has uh, shaved her pubic hair, oh. which is very atypical because this is 74, 75-ish when yeah. that was made. Uh-huh. You see a lot of vagina in that film. A lot of like zoom-in, close-up shots of vagina. Um, you know, not the hustler style not the spread, spread the open fold, the, and, yeah, yeah not that but you know still close-up shots of vagina it's a lot of beaver shots uh and i appreciate that yeah it's, it's good. good filmmaking <laughs> sure is um that's one thing that steven spielberg can never say he doesn't have a lot of good close-up shots of vaginas there were none in three indiana jones films four indiana jones films not a single vagina shot it's tragic and uh jaws jaws you kind of see that lady's butt in the beginning but where's her vagina exactly as far as i know she doesn't have one she's like a barbie doll yeah steven spielberg doesn't make movies about real people he makes movies about freaks like him (laughs) from there we cut to shots of the trophy room and then we see sylvia uh much like Holly, toward the beginning of the film, she's standing upright with her arms chained up. Uh, they slap her to wake her up, saying it's dawn soon. Um, Sylvia pleads with them. She says, go ahead and do it. She knows that they want to kill her. The Count says, that'd be no fun. And he claims that they're artists. The Countess says that she's incapable of killing in cold blood. I love the hunt, the game of life and death. The most dangerous game. She says that she always gives her prey a chance to escape. She says at dawn they'll let her go, and then ten minutes later she will hunt her with her bow. The Count says that when the church bell strikes nine, she'll be free to go, and the Count will take her back to dry land. Uh, From there the Count says, it's dawn. Let's begin. And then the Count drags uh, Sylvia off. From there, we get to see Bob again in his uh, fine denims. Mm-hmm. He's smoking a cigarette back at his place, and Mara walks in. She says that they got two million for her. Two million what? I'm not sure, but apparently that's a lot of money. And two million most things is a decent amount of money. Yeah, they got Franks. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably Franks. I don't know. I know what... Lira is like a very is that Italian? small. Yeah, Italian uh, Lira is a very small denomination. What do the Spanish have? Pesos. Mm... Mexico has pesos. Mexico has pesos. I don't know what the Spanish currency of the time is. This is definitely 
The Euro is what, like the 90s probably? I think like, yeah, that's more of a, yeah, 90s. It's definitely thing. not now. No. Or, you know, not in the 70s. The EU, I think, was just being formed at this point, uh, for the most part. For fans into geopolitics, if you can correct us, uh, let us know. Yeah, we will... We'll write, a, we'll write a retraction. We'll at least read what you wrote and go, huh, and then move on with our lives. So, um, Bob seems a bit down, uh, regardless of the amount of money that they got. So... After putting out his cigarette, Bob walks up the steps in his home and the music starts getting tense. Maura is undressing in her room when Bob walks in. And then he walks over and throws Maura down on the bed and starts choking her. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a sex scene, but it quickly changed. Um, Do you think he should have used one of his mini chains to strangle her? Perhaps. I think that would have been a good use for those. They're so so present that at that point you just want to see them. Right. I mean, you might as well use them if you got them. She finally dies with her tongue sticking out cartoonishly. Uh, and her arms kind of sticking up in the air a little bit, kind of frozen. <laughs> um, but he gets off of her. And then we cut to another boat shot looking out over the sea. And then we cut back to the beach of the island and shots through the brush zooming out and panning along the way. And we get this very per- uh, percussive rock jam music, very drum heavy. And then we see Sylvia naked running through the, a clearing toward the camera. She still has heels on. Uh, she or flip flops or she something. has shoes of some yeah. sort on. I don't think they're heels. No, that, um, but this makes sense. I feel like if you're going to hunt somebody through the wilderness, you should at least give them shoes. Yeah, they take everything else from her but her shoes. Uh, I appreciate that she's naked other than the shoes. This definitely gives the film a lot more flavor through this scene. Right. So she's running naked through a clearing, and then she hides behind a palm tree, looks back a bit, and then runs off further. Yeah, it kind of becomes sort of like a nudie cutie kind of thing for a little bit, where there's like the last 15 minutes of the film is just two naked women running around an island. Right. Except unlike a nudie cutie, there's a very sinister backstory going on here. Oh, yeah. Whereas in the nudie cutie, they'd probably be playing uh, volleyball or... Or at least just hide and seek, and at the end they're going to, like, touch each other's boobs or something. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the music gets, like, really tribal at this point. We see the Countess in pursuit of her. Uh, she's also nude, except she's got this, uh, this uh, like, uh, golden chain around her waist that the has, a, yeah, that has a, a quiver for her arrows on it. Um, and, yeah, she's carrying a bow. And uh, a necklace with a big medallion. Um, she's not running. She's moving at a very casual pace and scanning the area. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of back and forth shots. And this scene goes on for a while. Um, the Countess is slowly stalking. Uh, Sylvia keeps hiding in the brush. And then she'll sprint off to another area and hide and lurk through. Uh, the Count's kind of lurking as well. Fully dressed walking through the area. Why wasn't he naked? Uh, I don't know. He should have been. I guess because he wasn't directly involved in the hunt. Yeah, I think that, honestly, his presence might be cheating in a way, I feel like. Yeah. Two against one is not really that fair if you want to, like, try to make this a fair thing. Of course, it's also not fair that Sylvia doesn't get a weapon. Also, I don't think she was ever, even if she got to 9 o'clock, I feel like they would still kill her and eat her because she would expose them anyway. Right. Right. 
So in in the most dangerous game, the other guy's another hunter, right? I think so. And I does think, he have a weapon? I don't know if I don't remember from the film. Maybe he had like a machete or something, but um, he at least was like a survival type who could like make traps and things. He wasn't just uh, some some dimwit girl. <laughs> yeah, some dimwit girl um, uh, being hunted by the ultra rich. Uh, and again, that's not a criticism of Lena Romay, who actually does seem like a very smart person. It's just the character is written to be a dimwit, as we've noted along the way. Right. So we get repeated cuts between the Count, the Countess, and Sylvia. No one's seeing each other for a long time, but I'm kind of digging it with the music, the nudity, and just the general weirdness of what's going on. Um, we see Sylvia take off running at one point and the music gets really rock filled again yeah and at that point the count sees sylvia and calls for the countess again i feel like that's bullshit and unfair yeah that is kind of cheating i'd agree with that so it's not sporting so it's at this point that we see bob has resurfaced on this island with a bow and arrow and is running up the steps toward the house uh, we see sylvia running across the beach with the countess in pursuit uh, the Countess squats and draws her bow and then hits Sylvia in the shoulder with an arrow. Okay, I wondered where that hit. Cause it, but yeah, the shoulder was what I was thinking. Right. Uh, but really, Bob shouldn't be trying to sacrifice people that he has feelings for. Yeah, I feel like it's something where Bob felt like he had to do it, and then he did it, and then afterwards he felt a lot of remorse for it. So he's coming back to stop it because he's apparently fallen in love with Sylvia or yeah. something. <laughs> Enough that he murdered his wife. Right. <laughs> Oops. So after getting hit, Sylvia falls to the ground, and we see Bob turn up behind the Countess, and he shoots her in the spine with an arrow. She falls and groans a bit uh, before she stops moving. Uh, Bob comes up to Sylvia and pulls the arrow out of her shoulder, which you're not really supposed to do. Yeah, I, I thought that might have been incorrect. Uh, and clearly things didn't turn out well. So um, the Count comes up and sees the aftermath of all this. Uh, Bob asks why and threatens to call the police. The Count says he won't do it because he's involved in this too. So Bob picks Sylvia up and she appears to be dead, probably because Bob pulled that arrow out because yeah. it seems like it would be a non-lethal shot. But after he pulled it out, it probably severed some sort of artery or something, and now she's dead. Yeah, she's bleeding. She's bleeding out. He's crying. Bob's crying, and then we see him carry her toward the beach and just walk into the water with Sylvia. I guess yeah. walking to his death underwater. Yeah, very dramatic, Bob. Um, so drama queen. So yeah, he walks until they go under as the count watches. Uh, we get a panning shot. Uh, the countess uh, kind of zoomed in on her breasts as, as we go across her body and then we see the count looking down at the countess he says he's waited so long for this moment for me you'll be the best meal of my life we see a zoom in on his eyes and the scene blurs out and we get Finn on the <laughs> screen and that is the end of Countess Perverse yes uh, he's going to eat all the evidence of his crimes yeah, he'll, they'll never find out on account of it being his shit now. Yeah, they're not going to check that. They never check the shit. This is the film that Jess Franco made. And uh, when it was turned over to the French distributor, he was horrified by this film. 
he felt it was very dark and grim uh and he you know thought that you know this is something that should be uh targeted towards you know the sex film audience more so than whatever audience this would have which is hard to really classify because it's really a almost a 50 50 horror sex film mix here so he demanded that uh jess shoot more stuff for Mm -hmm. the film and jess's approach to this was well if i don't do it they're just going to get some other director to do it so he decided he would do it and he made two or three more movies while he was shooting the extra footage (laughs) (laughs) um it does look like he when he was shooting the extra footage it was likely during the shooting of uh Lena the... Ex- Lorna the Exorcist? Lorna the Exorcist, okay. that's what I was thinking, yeah. It was during the shooting of Lorna the Exorcist because there's this hotel room that's in this new footage that appears in Lorna the Exorcist as okay. well. Okay, so I was, my joke was correct. So, uh, the original version of this film that we just talked about was out of circulation for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'm not sure that it even had a, a premiere in that original version. Mm-hmm. It was only in recent years that it turned up as a home video release. So the cut that was seen more than that was called The Munchers, more or less, is what the uh, version that was under the widest release was under. Uh, it's a French. It's a French name. I don't have it written down in Le my Manche. notes. It's La Chaux de Ville. I, I can't remember. I should have put it in my notes, but I didn't. So Fucking. Anyhow, so under that title, Jess shot a bunch more footage and added it to the film. So this like 80-something minute film became a hour and 40-minute film, so like a 100-minute film. So let me go through real quick the new footage in this film and just how insane it is. So I didn't view any of this footage, so this is a world premiere for me. So this was released on DVD releases. It was titled Sexy Nature. Here's the funny thing about this. So Sexy Nature is the name of this on home video. However, in Italy, there was a release of this film called Sexy Nature that includes a bunch of hardcore footage that was shot by an Italian director mm-hmm. and added to this film. That version of Sexy Nature is not what's on, on home video. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's available anywhere. Um, I'll plumb the depths of the internet to see. But anyway, uh, this version of the film is titled on home video as Sexy Nature, but it was released originally as The Munchers in French theaters. Um, so this film begins differently. It begins with a shot of an airplane over a harbor, and the camera turns to show a new character uh, named Carol. Um, Carol is played by Carolyn Riviera, uh, Carolyn Riviere is apparently uh, Jess Franco's stepdaughter, uh, which in full Dario Argento style ends up naked later in the film, so congrats. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so we see Carol. She's at a table on the balcony of this hotel writing. She's some sort of writer. Journalist, perhaps. Uh, she's talk. Well, no, she's a uh, novelist of sorts. Oh. She's writing and talking out loud, like saying what she's writing about some horrible monster ripping at some girl. And then we see Sylvia, Lena Romay, walking out in a towel asking what she's doing. And Carol explains it's her new masterpiece she's writing. Sylvia criticizes her, calling it some sort of filth full of crime, monsters, horror, and rape. This seems like it's probably a meta comment about Franco's work. Mm-hmm. And there's two different ways it could be viewed. 
Stephen Thrower in his book um, talked about this a bit. It could be seen as a as the producer's criticism of Franco's work, who wanted him to go back and shoot this extra footage before it was released. Um, there's also a possibility that it uh, reflects Lena Romay's criticism of Jess's work. Lena has often said in interviews she preferred like the comedic roles and stuff like that. Yeah, and she gets far less of those opportunities in Jess's work than she gets in these kind of horror roles. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because it feels like it's definitely some sort of meta comment about Jess's work. Right. Um, So Carol asks what Sylvia is doing and Sylvia explains she's going to see friends. Uh, Carol asks if Sylvia is going to see Tom and she says no. Then the phone rings and Sylvia rushes to answer it. Tom is Bob, by the way. Yes. uh, I was going to get to that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, along the way, I was going to reveal it when I revealed it, but yes, um, <laughs> cut it out. So anyway, you never tell me when you want to do reveals. I'm always jumping at. I'm always jumping at the bit, chomping at the bit, champing, champing, I'm a real <laughs> champ. Uh, so anyway, the phone rings. She answers it, and she says Tom several times. So we realize she is seeing. She is talking to Tom, even though she told her friend she wasn't seeing Tom. When she hangs up, Carol comes in and asks if it was Tom, and Sylvia tells her no. So they chatter a bit, and Sylvia asks Carol, what if it was Tom? Carol says, well, he's married, and he's a bastard. You can tell by his eyes. And Carol talks about this theory uh, that she read about being able to tell a person's character by their eyes. Uh, Sylvia's getting dressed during all of this. I kind of agree with that. I think you can tell... um Especially with like politicians or something, there's the eye, the eye test. I think you can look into them and see if there's any like humanity left inside of a person. Spoiler alert: there usually isn't. Right, they're uh, all ghouls. <laughs> Sylvia explains to Carol that Tom's a good friend and his wife is nice, and she more or less calls Carol paranoid. Sylvia leaves and Carol goes back to the balcony and kind of throws up a middle finger off the balcony. Uh, and then returns to writing her filth at a table. So from here, we cut to the opening scene of the original version where Bob's looking out over the beach. So from here, everything's normal up to a certain point. It goes like it does in the original version. Mm -hmm. But after the scene where Kali finishes telling her story to the couple and they carry her off, uh, we get a new scene where Carol gets a phone call in the hotel room. It's... Tom calling for Sylvia. Sylvia answers the phone after Carol gives it to Sylvia. Uh, and while Sylvia is going like, yes, Tom, sure, Tom, so, uh, Carol, her friend, is mocking her off the phone. Yes, Tom, sir, Tom. Okay, Tom, whatever you say, Tom. This edits into the scene oh, where... Tom, I love your dick. <laughs> So this edits into the scene where Bob was calling and asking to talk to Sylvia in the original version. But at this point, when we get back to Bob at his house, he's asking for Sylvia on the phone, even though this conversation has already started. So this doesn't make sense. Uh, It needed better editing. Also, their conversation, if we assume that it was happening at different times, their conversation doesn't match up at all together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course... She is calling him Tom, but everywhere else in the film, he's named Bob. Yes. So, he's Bob Tom. Bob Tom. Tom, Bob and Tom. Yeah, he is is both Bob and Tom. Yeah, of the 
the radio show that will not die. <laughs> so Sylvia hangs up the phone and she tells Carol that Tom invited her to go with him and his wife to a rich couple's island. Sylvia seems excited, but Carol says it's far too risky. Sylvia says she doesn't care. We cut back to uh, Bob and Mara, and his wife calls him Bob, so this cut's working really well. So they talk like in the original, but there is now a new sex scene. Uh, It's supposed to be Tom and Mara, but we don't see Tom's face at all. And at first, I didn't think it was Mara in the scene, but I double-checked and... Uh, based on what Stephen Thrower wrote about it was her. I think it was just maybe it's a year later. She looks a little different. Yeah. Um, but we see a lot of shots of them like from the side and out of focus and stuff. And then he gets up, and again, we don't see his face or anything. But Mara starts to uh, fillet him a bit. But uh, he does not have an erection at all. Oh. It's a very flaccid penis. Uh, very almost like sucked up inside him almost she's just kind of licking and sucking on it a little bit she must be bad yeah there's there are a lot of flaccid dongs in jess franco's work and especially when we talk about the hardcore stuff it really becomes a problem (laughs) uh in softcore you can hide it right (laughs) but in hardcore it's tough yeah Uh, especially when we talk about lulu's talking ass which much like the great film bat pussy uh, I don't believe Lulu's talking ass features an erection. Uh, that's, yeah, we'll get to that one day. That is not a good Jess Franco film. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of kissing and mild fellatio, but again, no evidence of an erection. Lots of close-up zoomed-in shots so you can't see much. And then finally from there, we cut uh, to a shot of the water and then the scene of Sylvia on the beach with Bob and Mara like in the original. So we get a lot of the stuff from the original, but after Bob and Mora offer uh, for Sylvia to stay, we see her go to the hotel like she does in the original version. We just had kind of a random shot of her walking into the hotel and then a cut back to her on the island again. Uh, This time we see a scene of her when she goes to the hotel talking to Carol um, with her trying to dissuade Sylvia from going. Carol is naked in this scene, so congrats, stepdaddy Jess, for getting your stepdaughter (laughs) naked in your film. Um, To be fair, Argento used his full daughter naked in his film, so, you know. Several films, Several films, yeah. Have you seen many of those? Um, Didn't he do, like, a Dracula, like, not that long ago that had her? Yeah, Dracula 3D. I haven't seen that one. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't think in the Stendhal Syndrome she's naked much. I think she's a little... She's naked a little bit. She definitely gets raped in it, but it's. I don't think it's a very graph... Like, it's a, it's a dark scene, but it, I don't think that it shows much. I don't know. Anyhow... I guess I'm glad my dad's not that involved in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, so Carol tells Sylvia that anything can happen on an island. Death, gang rape, etc. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sylvia lists islands like, oh, yeah, an island like Hawaii or the Bahamas or Puerto Rico. And Carol says, well, there's also the island of Dr. Moreau, the island of Fu Manchu, and the island of Count Zaroff. Which is, of course, a reference to the most dangerous game, but also this film itself. Yes. The Uh, character is Count Zaroff in this film. It's a bit on the nose. It's a bit on the nose. Uh, But 
real quick side step on that theme uh i've been reading night shift the uh stephen king like early like 70s like short story collection yeah um and children of the corn is one of the stories in there yeah so after that i was like well, i'll just go back and watch the movie because i haven't seen it in a couple of years they have a copy of night shift on the dashboard when they're driving into town they could have <laughs> opened that book at any point <laughs> and, and, and figured, figured out, out exactly what was going to happen to them <laughs> right but they didn't and the same thing happens in this film cut apparently yeah uh you know you got to use your resources people a bunch of dummies from here we cut back to tom and sylvia dancing with mara in the foreground like in the original and we get a lot of the same stuff from the original so things continue like they do in the original up until the scene where bob mara and sylvia are naked on the beach we cut from there to a close-up on a vagina of course Mm -hmm. and then a pan up and then we see that this is a room with two women chained up naked Uh, the countess walks in and kisses both of them she unchains one of the girls and throws her onto the ground and forces that girl to give oral to the still chained up girl she watches as the unchained uh, girl kisses and licks uh, the chained girl for a bit and after a while she unchains the other girl and they crawl to the ground and make out in 69, and then this scene ends. <laughs> no, that seems like maybe like more exploitative than most of the stuff that happened in like the original cut. Right. The idea here wasn't necessarily to tone down the sexuality. It was more to focus less on the cannibalism mm-hmm. and more on the sex uh, to make it more jerk-off friendly, I guess. Okay. To a certain crowd. Some people want to jerk off to cannibalism. Yeah, I mean, this cut doesn't get rid of the cannibalism stuff, so, I mean, yeah, it I just changes say. the pace and kind of makes the pace of the film worse and makes it more confusing because of all these changes. I'm baffled. There's more. So, <laughs> after this shot ends, we go back into the original film where the trio are walking up to the house, so... After the scene where the Countess gives Sylvia some bed clothes and tells her she'll be back later, we get a scene where Sylvia sneaks out of bed and then opens a closed door in the house randomly. And this scene is baffling and makes no sense. So she walks into the room and we see a man and a woman tied up back to back. So Sylvia walks up to the man and touches on him a bit. And then reaches around to caress the woman while she's kissing on the man. Mm-hmm. She grinds on him a bit. She goes around and rubs and licks the woman's vagina and then goes back around to the guy, kisses on him a bit, and then starts to blow him while he, she pleasures herself and also reaches between his legs to start fingering the woman's vagina too. So this is a somewhat explicit scene here because we got full-on fellatio. And it's not uh, quite as rubber-dicked as the earlier one. Uh, I don't know if this dick was at 100%, but it certainly wasn't at like 5% like the one earlier. So a nice 75. Probably, yeah. It was chubbed up, but, you know, you didn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't inflexible. So we cut straight. So this scene doesn't make any sense because Sylvia should be naive to what's going on on this island and yeah. not finding just random people tied up. We cut straight from here, not back to the original narrative, to, but to a scene with the Countess with another guy. Uh, it's not the Count, but I think it's supposed to be Bob, Robert Woods. But mm-hmm. of course, it's not Robert Woods because he wouldn't do sex scenes. He wouldn't scenes. fuck on camera. 
So he's on top of the Countess having sex, and then they have, like, doggy-style sex. He gets on top and grinds on her a bit, and then goes missionary sex, and then she's on top again. And we get some psychedelic music, but again, this is a softcore scene, no penetration. But um, it's really odd and doesn't make much sense, because at this point, Bob has left the island, so why would he even be there? Who knows? Um, Just a random guy she had chained up somewhere, I think. Perhaps it could have been, but yeah. So then we cut to the scene of the Countess visiting Sylvia in bed, like in the original. And then for the duration of the film, things continue like they did in the original until the end. So we get that shot of after uh, Bob and Sylvia go walking into the ocean and uh, the Count's looking down at the Countess, imagining eating her. Uh, we get a new scene where Carol is walking by a pool at the hotel and she sits down at a table and reads a newspaper. She sees something and she's startled, so she rushes back into her hotel room and she finds Sylvia laying naked asleep in the bed. Carol's frantically asking if Sylvia's okay and asks her if she's sure. Carol explains that she read in the paper that a woman was found dead on an island shot by an arrow. Sylvia said it wasn't her, obviously. You know, Carol asked if she went to the island with her friends, and Sylvia explains she didn't spend the weekend with the couple because she realized that Carol was right and that he's a real bastard. So Carol and Sylvia embrace. Carol says, I really like you, Sylvia. Sylvia says, really? Carol says, really? And they hug more, and the camera drips, drifts off to, like, a shot of the wall and blurs out, and that's where the film ends. So the idea was to tack on a happy ending. Okay, so no one got murdered at the end of that one. She just was like, I don't know about these people and their sexy games. Right, so half the film didn't happen, basically. Probably more than half the film. Perhaps none of the film, the original film, happened. And it still manages to be longer? Yes, it's an hour and 40 minutes. Because they didn't cut cut basically anything out of the original. This is all just added stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So cannibalism's addressed, but not, like, given any kind of, like, final status in the film. I mean, it's given as much status as it is in the original, except that at the end they they basically say, oh, this didn't actually happen. Although maybe it did happen because there was somebody shot with an arrow on an island, so maybe something happened. But Sylvia wasn't involved. I hate it. Yeah, it's it's bad. So this is not the preferred version of the film. Uh, the original Countess Perverse Director's Cut is the right version. Mm-hmm. But like many of Jess's films, there's like different cuts and the distributors have had their way with his films repeatedly. So, you know, that's how it is. So um, Countess Perverse was released on DVD by Mondo Macabro. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, it was also released on a Blu-ray uh, as a double feature with How to Seduce a Virgin. Uh, both the DVD and Blu-ray release include both the Countess Perverse and uh, retitled Sexy Nature, but not hardcore version of the film. Uh, unfortunately, both the DVD and the Blu-ray are out of print and may set you back a bit. So, Hopefully sometime soon it comes back into print, either through Mondo Macabro or another group. Mm -hmm. Uh, This release is really good. It includes an interview with Robert Woods about his role with Jess's films. 
uh, includes introductions for both films by Stephen Thrower, who wrote the books that I talked about. It also includes a uh, a talk with I don't remember who it was, but it was a talk about Jess Franco's history of covering the works of the Marquis de Sade, uh, which is more relevant to How to Seduce a Virgin. But uh, again, there's a little bit of a Sadian influence to this film as well. All right, so we're going to take a little break here, and then we'll, we'll come back to give our reviews for Countess Perverse. speed read through my review all right uh so welcome back here we're going to talk uh and give our final thoughts on countess perverse so i'll turn it over to our in-house critic here jeremy jeremy talk uh, to us about countess perverse i didn't write anything down that was a lie shit yeah um i really liked it um i feel like i say that a lot about a lot of the films but we're picking them. It's not like someone's, you know, sending us garbage to look at. Yeah, so. we're, we're picking films that we think we're going to like anyway. Right. Uh, um, I had already seen it, and I knew that I liked it, so I figured it would be something that you would like, at least on some level. Yeah, it's, like you said, it's only about 80 minutes long, so it gets in and gets out. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of time to uh, divert from its main themes of uh, cannibalism and hunting humans and sexual sadism and all that all the good stuff yeah like um it seems well how it seems the uh alternate cut you viewed was i'm glad i didn't watch that yeah like in the case of dixie ray hollywood star i feel like watching the alternate cut helped put the plot together it just seems like you said they just put the kind of a new movie together right that was happier because people weren't comfortable uh with uh people being eaten yeah but that's the reality is the rich people are eating us. Exactly. And I think it's important that we turn the tables and eat them. Yeah. And this movie uh, stands as a testament to that fact. But, you know, even though he used, uh, you said, like, library music and everything, it still Mm -hmm. felt like a very Franco kind of score along with the film. It's a very Franconian film, as we've talked about (laughs) before. Um, So everything that I usually like in his films was there, the weird uh visuals the abuse of the zoom yeah uh the psychedelic music the weird sex and like i'd probably agree with you i haven't seen any of his hardcore films but i think that doing just the softcore sex where he can kind of let the camera roam back and forth is probably more his forte than trying to film someone just getting pounded into the earth yeah when it comes to softcore films, generally speaking, I like those less than hardcore films. But I think that Jess Franco, like, with his very, you know, not to overuse the term, um, his very psychedelic way of doing things, he is able to capture a genuine eroticism that a lot of softcore directors really can't do. Um, you know, it's definitely a far cry from the showtime type uh <laughs> uh exploitation just of just riding the belly button bunch of belly stuff. button riding stuff yeah. uh 
there's it has this very you know again dreamlike quality surreal nature that works for it and you know his his eye for casting very beautiful women certainly helps uh drive the point home mm-hmm. i was i was interrupting you saying something originally i don't know i can't remember what i said okay. um i'm gonna go ahead i'm gonna wrap up my review okay let's cut to the heart of it um i'm gonna give it a three and a half out of out of the old five okay um Overall, I'd say my only criticism of it is how often people just run around in shoes naked, which doesn't happen often in life. (laughs) That's my main criticism of the film. I didn't find it realistic enough uh, concerning... I believe all the stuff about rich people just hunting poor people down and eating them. It's core to my belief as a human being. Right. But I just don't think they'd let us have shoes while they did it. <laughs> I guess that's fair. Three and a half. Check it out. <laughs> so, um, you know, my opinion on it is very similar. I feel like I'm less bothered by the uh, shoes. Um, for me, that just makes sense if you're trying to, uh, you know, stalk somebody through an island that you would be using shoes. Um Granted, the combination of shoes and nudity is odd. Uh, I appreciate it. It makes sense, because I try to put myself in their position, and I would be... You'd look so weird just naked in shoes. I would. Uh, But, you know, for the uh, mechanical necessities of what we were doing there, running through all different types of terrain, it makes sense for me to have shoes on. Let me hunt you. No, I don't want you to hunt me. Let me hunt you. So, uh, like you said before, this has Go a lot of... Go in the backyard of... and get naked. <laughs> I'll give you five minutes. Shit. Yeah, you know this neighborhood. You should be fine. Uh, shit. Okay, you don't leave your home. Yeah, I don't do that. Leaving the home is the worst. I would also give this three and a half stars. I really dig this film. It definitely uh, hits a lot of the Jess Franco greatest hits along its runtime, and I thought that this was a good uh, introduction to Jess Franco for the podcast. Uh, We will dig further into his films, both the highlights and maybe some lowlights of uh, of his work along the way. But yeah, this uh, this is a solid film. I like it a lot. Give it a watch. Give it a watch. Check your watch. What time is it? Uh, it's time to wrap things up. Okay. So once again, uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Raincoat Report. Email us at raincoatreport at gmail.com. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And tell people about it. Yeah. Eat the rich. Don't let the rich eat you. Exactly. So... Uh, Once again, I want to thank you guys for helping us keep 42nd Street alive, and uh, don't forget your raincoat.